Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders, past and present, as well as recognize that the area where FBI radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. Hey, I'm Danny Stewart, and you're listening to All the Best. The workings of the animal kingdom are foreign to many of us. This week, we're bringing you stories that delve deep into the hidden world of cats, and later in the episode, the hidden world of bees. And a heads up, this first story contains talk of harm to animals. We're silent. We come in the middle of the night, we do the work and we leave and nobody even knows what we're doing. But one day there's 40 cats in the street and the next day you've only got one or two because people like us are out there doing the work at night. Could I get you to just uh, introduce yourself yeah. and, and, and what you do? Yeah. My name is Maritza and I'm one of five volunteers for Community Cat Carers. We're a small local inner west rescue group, cat rescue group. Community Cat Carers operates out of an old rundown house in Sydney's inner west. This is one sleepy little room in here. Oh, wow. Yeah. There's like a dozen cats in that room. Yeah, yeah. There's probably about a dozen in each. <laughs> wow. This is, this is little... The entryway is packed wall to wall with cat food, crates, medicine and paraphernalia. There are cats occupying every space in the house, lounging on chairs, couches, on rugs and in crates. At the back, the porch has been fully enclosed with fencing and perspex panels. There are cat trees and crates floor to ceiling. Now, this is, this is mostly the real street cats. Yeah, right. The ones that, that don't want to socialise with me or, you know, they just want to be on their own. Community Cat Carers' mission is to reduce the overpopulation of street cats in Sydney primarily through rescue and rehoming. Many of the ones living here with Maritza are the unhomable, sick and dying cats. Well, that cabinet almost looks like a pharmacy shelf. (laughs) They have medical conditions that make them too expensive or difficult to adopt. There's a couple here like that that have had serious medical issues that we've found that are like pedigree animals, but you can't put them back onto the street because they won't survive and nobody wants them. So Maritza has taken them in and they live out their days here where she gives them the best quality of life that she can. After showing me around a bit, we sit down in Maritza's living room. Like every other room in the house, this one is filled with cats. And one of them sits on Maritza's lap and periodically boops the microphone. What does a typical day look like for you? A typical day is um, getting up in the morning and, of course, feeding everybody, cleaning. The cleaning never ends, of course, litter boxes and litter boxes. And then it's all their health care. Sometimes doing all their medicines and everything can take an hour, two hours. Feeding can take a couple of hours. There's some that have special diets, some that need to eat separately, some that you have to sit with to eat, some that need to be hand-fed. Take all that into consideration and you're after lunch already. And then it's downtime for them. They'll all go and sleep. And that's when I do all the housekeeping. Before too long, it's time to go out and feed all the street cats 
and that can take a couple of hours. And then when I come home, it's reverse routine of the morning. So it'll be dinner feeds and, and medicines and all of that, and then it's bedtime. And sometimes that can be three o'clock in the morning. A lot of rescue groups will only do one thing. Um, you just do it all. We'll try and help everybody that we can help, if we can, if it's within our capacity, whether it be look after mums and kittens or, you know, the aged or look after street colony cats. Maritza feeds her local street cats every day, no matter what the weather is like. When I met Maritza, we were just coming out of some major flooding in New South Wales. We've, like, just had, like, a, a lot of um, rain, like, the past couple of weeks. And are you, are you like, out on those rainy nights I as well? I certainly am. Five years I've been doing the feeding circuit that I, I do that you'll see tonight, and I haven't missed one night. doesn't matter what the weather is, they still need to eat. Maritza offered to drive me on a regular feeding route. And as we're getting ready to leave, she's checking to make sure all of the cats are locked inside the main house. Okay, I've just got to find... There's this one I've got to find. He's a bit of a... I don't know if he's inside or outside. It's at this moment that I realise that Maritza is fully accounting for every single cat. Do you know all of them by name? Yes, I do. Wow. <laughs> eventually I think this was donated to us because um somebody was just going to get rid of it sorry it does drive a bit of this <laughs> despite their reputation as solitary creatures cats on the street tend to band together a group of street cats is generally referred to as a colony we don't like putting them back if we can avoid it, we, we certainly will. But the ones that are, are on the street have had all their vet work done and everything. They are like family also. They become like your, your animals, you know? You see them every night, you, you feed them every night. There's one sitting there. Often if they're all there waiting, they, they come running to this, this gate here. They recognise your whistle? Yeah, and the car. All in all, we make seven stops. By the way, all of the street cats have names too. There's one. That's Beauty. They've all got names. And Beauty talks. He's very <laughs> chatty. If the food's not on time, he, he will let me know. While we're driving, Maritza starts describing to me the biggest project community cat carers has ever taken on. One night, Maritza got a call. Someone had found a blind kitten in a cemetery. And, um... It was crying and, and lost. Three of us jumped in the car at like two, three o'clock in the morning. We were searching, 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 couldn't find the kitten anywhere. It was horrible. Cemetery in the middle of the night and there was spider webs everywhere and it was, it was really quite eerie. So the next morning, the girl that was with us lived close. So she went back with her husband and she she encountered a few people like jogging with their dogs in the in the cemetery and she said to them, have you seen a kitten? And somebody said to her, look over that fence. So she looked over that fence and the fence is the market gardens and she saw cats everywhere, hundreds of cats everywhere. So she called me back and she said, you're not gonna believe it. I said, did you find the kitten? She said, no kitten but we have found this massive colony. There were dead cats, there were dead kittens, there were sick animals gasping for breath, there were baby kittens with skeletal mums that couldn't feed them. 
I've never seen anything like it before, you know, not to this degree. I don't know that there are many colonies around the Sydney area anyway, this big, with that many dead and dying cats. The colony lives on a small farm, a traditional Chinese market gardens. It started out as a handful of cats that the farmers liked to keep around to manage the rodents and birds. Raywin has been coming here since community cat carers first started working with the colony four years ago. There were 250 cats. Decades of feeding the undersexed cats led to a ballooning population, and that led to inbreeding and disease. You know, they were just full of cat flu. They couldn't see some of them when we did trap them and took them to the vet. Eyes had to be taken out because that's what cat flu will do if it affects their eyes. It takes their sight. Older ones would have had renal failure and lots of them, you know, were dying from that as well. You know, we would see skeletons, also ones that had just died. So, you know, you could see fur on them and starting to, you know, decompose. Community cat care has racked up masses of, of vet bills, debt. If it was alive, we wanted to take it to the vet to see if we could save it and ultimately, you know, find a home for it. It felt like it was a big burden. Yeah. And if you start, you can't finish either because this is the thing. You know, it's no use just dissexing, you know, half of them because that other half are still having babies. Mm. You can't just do some of them and then and then stop because... The next year, they're all, all the ones that you've desexed. They're all going to be back again. So um, it's been a, a big job. And it's obviously an ongoing job as well, you know, because now we have the maintenance of them just to making sure that the ones that, you know, we have saved us still carry on being happy and, yeah. and healthy. And um, Liza, one of the other volunteers, takes me to a little shack at the back of the farm, sitting on a mound of sand. She shows me the cat beds and towers and crates that she set up. Most of the remaining cats live here. Liza calls it cat Alcatraz. Oh, this is Alcatraz. Alcatraz? Yeah. Uh, How does it get in that name? Alcatraz? <laughs> well, it's remote and it's standing on essentially a rocky outcrop. It's a sandy outcrop. One of the farmers appears to have recently installed a mailbox for the cats. Somebody's put a mailbox there, that's funny. <laughs> that's the first time I've seen humour. Um, it's taken them four years, but now 250 cats is down to around 65, give or take, all of them dissexed. Uh, and we got to um, basically zero cats left to dissex for before or five months ago. But that's a lot of work. That's every single week coming out here, trapping one or two cats, taking them, getting them dissexed providing after-surgery care for a week to 10 days, sometimes two weeks, depending on the health of the animal, bringing them back out, trapping more, taking them back. So it's a massive piece of work. And it's a... This strategy is generally referred to as trap neuter release, or TNR. TNR has been shown to be effective in other countries, but it's controversial in Australia. It comes under a legal grey area. It's legal to trap the cat, it's legal to dissect them, But that last step, releasing them, that technically could be considered animal abandonment. We're not supposed to release them. Once they've been desexed and microchipped, they're actually owned by us. The cats that you're feeding, even though they've been trapped, neutered, and then then they're back on the street, they... Yes, so they, they become our property. Effective TNR programs are also resource intensive. Unless you neuter something like 100% of the cats in a colony, the population will continue to grow. 
And the bigger the population, the more difficult it is to achieve adequate trapping and dissexing rates. In a recent parliamentary inquiry into feral cat control, a majority of the submissions opposed the use of TNR in Australia. But the only alternative on offer is killing the unhomed cats. I have no, no issue at all if a cat is unwell and it can't be helped, mm. or the cost to help it is um, such that you could spend that, you know, $2,000 or $3,000 helping 10 other cats, then I would put that animal down. We've had to do it here with cats that I love very, very much, and it's been extremely painful. Mm. But no, I, I am deeply opposed to kill shelters. But I also understand that the reality is that they have way more animals than they will ever have people wanting to adopt. Speaking with Liza and Ray Wen, it's obvious that this work is difficult and demanding. Liza works full-time and somehow fits in some 50 to 20 volunteer hours a week doing this. That's, um, it's a lot of commitment to, to, to do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, why would anyone do this? <laughs> I guess that I was thinking of a more sensitive way to frame it, but yes. Why the hell would anyone do this? I get asked that a lot. Um, because because when you see the need and when you meet the animals, um, it's a very, very short time between meeting the cats and forming a bond. And once you know that the little thing that you can do makes a difference, it's impossible not to do. I'm very firmly believe that we have a responsibility to the community to help where we can and certainly not everybody's things as cats. I would help any animal, it doesn't need to be cats, it will be native wildlife at a different time, Uh, it'll be people at another time. If you can, you should. And when you meet the cats and you form a bond and a relationship and you understand them as the individuals and the sentient beings that they are, you can't help but want to help. And then it stops being help, then it becomes the thing that you do and I am happiest when I'm here. They make me very happy. I'm content when I'm here. Mm. I think if I didn't go to the car park where we went tonight ever and find those 40-odd cats that were there, by the following year there would have been 80 and then there would have been, you know, 120 and then there would have been 300 cats there eventually as well and the problem doesn't go away and that's why we're here doing this so that we can prevent that. If we can prevent one animal from having a litter of six babies that will potentially end up in a pound and be euthanised, well then we'll do it. Do you, do you think of the work that you do as a community service? I think of the work that I do as an animal service and I can't think of a better thing to be in service for. I love it. It's hard and it's work, but it's work that gives me back way more than than I put in. You know, it helps with my mental health. If I'm not okay, if I'm not doing so well, I will come out here for five or six hours on a Sunday and by the time I go home, I'm peaceful and relaxed and I'm content and I get on with the rest of my week. They, They provide me a service too. We're silent. We come in the middle of the night, we do the work and we leave and nobody even knows what we're doing. But one day there's 40 cats in the street and the next day you've only got one or two. And how does that happen? Is because people like us are out there doing the work at night. It is a community service. It's an unknown and untold community service. There are a lot of us out there doing this at night that the community will never know. You might hear us whistling or talking in the middle of the night or hear a clatter or something out on the street and you'll think, what's that person doing out there? And they might be feeding street cats or trapping them to desex them or trapping kittens to get them off the street. If you don't love it, you wouldn't do it. 
it's hard work and it's it's um the only reward for us is that we get to see them have better lives. That story was produced by Ryan Pemberton. Mel Chun was the supervising producer. You can find out more about Cat Carers, donate and sign up to volunteer at communitycatcarers.raisley.com. I'm Danny Stewart and you're listening to All The Best. Do you have a story to tell? We're currently taking pictures for our spring pitch round. No radio experience is required and we'll pair you with a supervising producer. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com pitch. In our final story, Alina learns just how influential queens can be. Please use the first exit at the Sunflowers and continue north. Your queen is waiting. Please make sure all pollen is secure. They communicate through smell and vibration, and when they are home in the hive, they are in complete darkness. Inside the hive, the bees do something called the waggle dance. It's kind of very similar to a yin-yang symbol. They use this dance to communicate about what's outside the hive. So, for example, flowers. The angle at which they point their butt indicates the direction of the flowers. The faster they shake it, the closer the flowers, and the slower they shake it, the further away. Bees use the waggle dance to communicate about all things outside the hive. So not just flowers, but also water and maybe even a new home. So the bees will decide that, you know, they're quite happy, they're quite populous. They want to spread their genetics into the environment. And so instead of the queen just leaving and starting the beehive on her own, she'll take half the workers with her. So the old queen leaves and they'll make a new queen. So it's a perpetual cycle of them splitting in half, kind of taking out half the colony. To create a new queen, a female egg is selected by the worker bees and drowned in royal jelly and that will change the hormonal composition of the egg to turn into a queen. After 16 days, the egg will hatch into a virgin queen. 
queen cell will then hatch, the virgin queen will come out, she'll go on mating flights. So she'll go outside for the next two weeks and mate with about 12 drones while they're flying. The boy bees are called drones and they hang out in drone congregation areas. And for anyone who lives in Sydney, there's actually one of these congregation areas at the University of Sydney. Drones will go there and they'll wait for a virgin queen to fly by because for some reason also the virgin queens know that this is where all the drones are. They mate while flying. The boys don't actually do any other work. Their one purpose in life is to mate with the virgin queen. They just kind of go outside and come back and eat a little and bumble around and, you know, have a chat to the girls, but they don't actually do any work. They don't forage, they don't clean, they don't do anything like that. They might provide a little bit of warmth, but the workers, the females, they do pretty much everything else. But once they've mated with her, their genitals fall off and they drop to the ground. Oh my God. <laughs> the temperament and personality of bees in a hive will actually mimic that of the queen. So if you have a chill queen, you've got chill bees. And if you have an angry queen, you've got very angry bees. You come across a beehive and it's super defensive. Like you go in there and they're just constantly trying to defend their brood and, and stinging and just a little bit agitated. If you take away the old queen and replace her with a new queen who has, you know, been bred to be passive nature, then that nature of the whole beehive will change because they will take after her. The bees don't seem to have much loyalty to their queen. And when she's gone, they don't mourn her. The bees don't care. They just kind of like say, oh, the queen is dead, long live the queen. They drag her out the front door and just throw her out. Really, once she's gone, they will then easily replace her. Instead of letting the bees create a new queen bee in the royal jelly, a beekeeper can actually ring up a queen bee breeder and replace her straight away. The new queen bee is actually delivered through the post. Yes, like Australia Post. They put a queen bee in a cage with four maidens, so she's got four bees which will travel with her, and a piece of candy. The queen bee has her maidens to look after her, feed her, and keep her company. And when they finally arrive at the hive, they can't actually be set free, because the other bees will kill them. So the cage has a little bit of mesh on there, and you put her in, and then she releases her pheromone, which then calms the other bees. They get used to her smell, and that candy is like a plug in the cage, and they eat through the candy. And during that time, they meet each other and they become friends. So they go express post. And it's the only time the post office will call you and say, your parcel is here, you can come pick it up now. Queen bees can live up to four or five years. But worker bees will only live 40 to 50 days. And in their lifetime, they will make less than a quarter of a teaspoon of honey. Research shows that a bee makes a twelfth of a teaspoon of honey its whole lifetime. On average, I take about 55 kilograms from a beehive, but most beehives will take about 130. The reason bees are always making honey is because they're stocking up for the winter. 
But in Australia, that winter never comes. And so I don't think it's really that bad we take their honey because they're not going to be needing it. However, this won't stop them from working really hard. In fact, they even have some guard bees at the front of the hive that will stop the worker bees coming in if they don't have enough pollen. On each beehive, there's guard bees at the front. And they're kind of checking everybody who comes in like they're on the door. Sometimes the bees will go home to a different beehive. We always thought that bees would be very specific on the beehives that they went to, but researchers suggested recently that they actually go on a holiday. So they might go to a beehive in the neighbourhood and spend, you know, maybe three or four days with that beehive and then come back to their original beehive. But she better take some nectar with her. But if they haven't come with anything, the guard bees are more likely to turn her away. Here's something I didn't know about why you might get stung by a bee. If you look like a bear, you have a higher chance of getting stung. Seriously, if you've got a big woolen coat on. Or maybe if you're really hairy. Got big black fuzzy hair. I know a lady, she's got two dogs. One's black, shaggy, kind of stinky. And the other one's very pretty and white. And so the black one, unfortunately, he always gets stung. swelled up really quick. It's horrible. And it, but it itched. It's not really painful as much as it is just crazy itchy. And you just keep... It's like a mozzie bite in the same spot ten times. And you're just itching yourself. And you put cream on You put anything <laughs> on it. It doesn't work. I remember I was in the pool. And a bee landed on my boogie board. So it was all colourful. Like a colourful boogie board. And I tried to flip the boogie board to drown the bee. <laughs> And he didn't drown. When I flipped it back over, he stung me. (laughs) (laughs) I think you looked kind of shocked that a bee had done this to you, actually. (laughs) You felt (laughs) aggrieved about that. I think, you know, the trust was definitely broken there. (laughs) Definitely. I'd like to thank Vicky Brown from the Urban Beehive Sydney for sharing all these wonderful facts and being part of this story. That story was produced by Alina Godwin with original sound design and composition also by Alina. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonarong lands and 8CCC on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All The Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Timothy Nguyen is our social media producer and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music 
and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.